uh, we'll begin. I want to welcome you. I'm Alex Jones. I'm director of the Jones Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy. And this is our first speaker of the new school year. Uh, I'm very, very pleased to welcome you all for this, and especially for, uh, for having Jessica Yellen as our, our, our inaugural guest. She is a distinguished journalist who has done an awful lot of political reporting in her career. She comes from, uh, well, she went to school in Santa Monica, California, and then came to Harvard. And as she said to me before we uh, came up here, uh, that really is not preparation for understanding America entirely. <laughs> but she managed to, uh, she graduated from Harvard magna cum laude and was able to was able to um, get a, a sense of America in a much better way in Tampa. And where else were you? Orlando. Orlando. Uh, I'm not entirely sure Florida is America either. But uh, in any event, she has been uh, covering politics, especially uh, Democratic candidates and, and dealing with presidents and would-be presidents for a number of years. She is now the chief White House correspondent for CNN and is the person effectively who is going to be leading the campaign coverage uh, for the president's uh, side of the argument during the coming campaign. Jessica, we are very pleased to have you with us. And uh, she's going to speak for a bit. I'm going to then have a, a conversation with her for a, a, a bit longer, and then we will open it up for your questions. I would ask that you turn off your cell phones if they are on, and uh, we will commence. Jessica. You're up. Well, it's a real treat to be here. Thank you for having me uh, back at my alma mater. I thought I'd start off by telling you a little bit about my first day as CNN's chief White House correspondent and then back into my general view of where we are uh, in the media right now. The day I was announced, uh, it happened on our morning editorial call, which every news organization ha has, and you know, it's this sort of global call for CNN. Uh, and about an hour after, so after this call, I start getting a wave of emails from friends and sources and, I mean, hundreds, and you feel obliged, of course, to start answering these emails because you want to have immediate replies and also these are contacts. And I immediately get word that Dana Bash has gone into labor. Dana Bash is our congressional correspondent and a dear friend. And this also matters because her husband, John King, anchors our 7 o'clock news. So um, I'm told, and now I'm supposed to go to lunch with my White House team um, and answer my emails, and I'm told, you have to do all that, but you're now also anchoring the 7 p.m. news, and who do you want on the show, and are you aware of what's going on in, I can't remember if it was Syria or Libya or whatever else is exploding that night, and I'm, you know, please pick which guests you'd like, and these 14 things are happening. And I'm on the show anchoring it that night, and somebody comes in my ear and says, we have a little breaking news, just go with teleprompter, which are the worst words for any anchor because you know you're bound to have a Ron Burgundy moment. And I look up and I see... Does anyone not understand what a Ron Burgundy moment is? Ron Burgundy, I mean, if you would, explain Ron Burgundy. For those who may not be uh, too seniophiles, I mean, Neil, uh, I don't know whether that's one of the ones that's at the top of your list or not, but... Uh, Effectively, Ron Burgundy was the nightmarish local television anchor who was the uh, 
the Ted of the Mary Tyler Moore. Show. Right. <laughs> we look up and it says something that's completely inappropriate that you should not be reading on teleprompter, something like, if it's me, hi, I'm Candy Crowley. You know, and so you end up reading that and you're like, I can't believe I just said that. So I look up and what I read is President Obama will be having a press conference at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning, which is how I find out that I will be attending my first presidential press conference in the morning. So I'm like, great. So I um, go to the press conference the next day and I've, of course, emailed all my sources in the White House to say, this is my first day. I expect to have a question. Thank you. Uh, and or in some sort of manner to suggest to them it would be great. So um, I've put out, you know, the press has asked for statements about getting this job. I've put out a press statement saying this is a dream job. And about 45 minutes go by in this press conference and he still has not called on me. He has gone to every network. He has gone to some Espanol press, some Espanol TV uh, newspaper outlet. And I'm thinking my dream job has turned into an anxiety dream job. And um, finally, he comes to me, and I ask a 35-second question, and he gives this nine-minute answer, which is the thing that ended up getting played over and over and over, and I'm sure you guys have all heard it, where I, I asked about the debt deal. It, this is the very beginning of the debt drama. Why should we believe that August 2nd is the final deadline? And this is when he goes off and he says, Sasha and Malia get their homework done on time. Why can't Congress get their homework done on time? I'm in town doing bin Laden. I'm doing Afghanistan. Where is Congress? Um, so there's a lot of drama on that one. Uh, and it felt like I was sort of thrown into that story, um, which beats falling into a story. I almost fell into a story once. I'll tell you this one. And then we can move on to bigger picture stuff. Uh, when I was at the Republican National Convention in 2008, I was doing a little walk and talk on stage, and um, they had just, were just finishing the stage, and I was sort of giving a little show and tell, and they still hadn't put in the teleprompter. And as I'm in the middle of my description, I'm live on air, and my producer, who was brand new with me that day, lunges into the shot and grabs my legs. And I am looking at him like, what are you doing to me? And I look down and I'm about a half inch from falling into the hole where the teleprompter would have been uh, 20 feet down. And of course the blogs pick this up and it's like yelling almost eaten by teleprompter all over the place. So um, these are just some of the hazards of working in this business in live television. Um, I thought I'd take a couple of minutes to talk about the larger hazards of working in cable news. Um, one of them is the rise of everyone these days as a reporter. So how many of you here blog or tweet or even have a camera on your phone? Of course, yeah, everybody. everybody. So your ability to report and participate in the news gathering process um, impacts what I do in a very real sense. Uh, it, it makes it quicker and faster and my need to respond more immediate. I can give you one particular example that's really concrete. We have at CNN what we call eye reporters. If you watch CNN, you see eye reports. You know, if there's a hurricane, somebody will get a tunnel cloud or funnel cloud, whatever you call them. And they send that in and you get the video. But one day I was on the National Mall doing a story and a man walks up to me. And I should back up and say we have these guys, if they're regular people who send them in, we vet them. So we know these are regular, these are legit people. They're not just making this up. They're regular eye reporters. So 
I'm on the National Mall doing a real story, and the guy walks up to me and goes, you're with CNN, aren't you? And I said, I am. And he goes, what bureau are you with? And I said, the Washington Bureau. And he told me his name, and I said, I don't know, what bureau are you with? He goes, oh, I'm one of your eye reporters. <laughs> he fully identified as a member of our news gathering operation. So in some ways, you know, we are not competing with, but in organization with other people who do see themselves as doing news in a very different way. Um, the other part of this is that reporters are constantly reported on. There are websites and blogs dedicated to watching and reporting on everything my colleagues and I do. So I have been written up on websites as um, a toady for Nancy Pelosi and a lapdog for the RNC barking out their talking points for the exact same story. Um, and it's just part of the reality of uh, covering politics. One of the other realities is that you know that you're always being watched. So there are bloggers with cameras at political events recording us. Uh, sometimes if I'm typing on my laptop, I look up and there's somebody over my shoulder watching what I'm typing. I've been asleep on a campaign plane and opened my eyes and there's some guy videotaping me asleep drooling. Uh, and there's even the constant awareness that you know, you're working on a story and talking to your um, producer and you're sort of zoned out to where you are. And there's, you go to event and event after event and you don't realize but they're doing the Pledge of Allegiance. And you have to be very vigilant and stand up and remember they're doing the pledge, I gotta get off the phone and do the pledge because you don't wanna be caught on camera not doing the pledge. You can imagine how that would read in, you know, to a broader audience if they don't understand that you're just completely engaged in work and not realizing where you are. So what does this lead to? Um, another piece of this reality is that, I should say, that's one trend. So there's another trend going on, which is some of the outlets are moving toward more detailed coverage with less context. So at Bloomberg, for example, where there are phenomenal reporters and, and very smart people, there's, they're in the midst of a hiring frenzy in DC, and they make no secret about the fact that they're looking for reporters who will get market-moving insights. That's what Bloomberg's subscribers are seeking, information that can impact bottom lines. At Politico, they're doing something similar with legislation. Uh, they're covering the minutia of the legislative process in a way that's often very substantial to lobbyists, to people who follow that, but without context. Um, so it's for people who can benefit from that intelligence. You see on rival cable networks, um, their anchors are sometimes going for a very specific points of view. I want to be very careful and clear because it's the anchors who do it, not the reporters. And that's a distinction that's often lost on viewers. The reporters on these cable channels are doing very straightforward reporting but the anchors often have a bias to the left or the right. Um, and you see the broadcast networks cut, cutting back and sending 20-something um, embeds, we call them, on the campaign buses covering stuff. So, and then, of course, print has less and less money these days to cover anything. Um, so what all this adds up to are fewer and fewer outlets covering context. Uh, they're covering either detail or minutia or snippets, but the real essence of what reporting was about, you know, a real sweep and putting this in some sort of meaning, meaningful environment for viewers, there are fewer of us out there doing that. 
Uh, and that's what I see my responsibility as, and that's what CNN, I think, sees its role as, um, within the confines of also providing entertaining news that people want to watch. There's also this reality that um, as we do all of this, politicians are savvy, and they want to avoid what we call, quote, committing news. So uh, that leads to some real absurdities these days about how we're backgrounded and briefed. Uh, we get a lot of, um, I'm going to tell you this off the record, I have no comment. <laughs> so what do you do with that? It's off the record and no comment. So I can't quote you saying no comment, but I'm going with no comment. No, you can't. Well, you have no comment. Well, it's like mind-bendingly confusing. Uh, during the debt negotiations, you would call up Democrats and Republicans, and they wanted to be sourced as Democrats or Republicans familiar with the debt negotiations. Then when the negotiations fell apart, they wanted to be Democrats or Republicans familiar with the situation. Well, how do you go on television and say that? I mean, that's completely confusing to um, viewers. I'll tell you that the Bush White House had a very different advantage because there was less blogging and tweeting, and they mostly had to worry about the cable outlets. Uh, so while they were controlled, the Obama White House has a much more um, careful concern that anything they can say at any minute can be tweeted out in the next second. And so I will even have a conversation with sources <coughs> saying things like, listen, I'm going to tell you this, but uh, you can say it on air, but please don't post it online. Or you can go on air, you can go online, but please don't tweet. Or tweet if I care. Um, and then finally I'll just say, we do all of this in a physical context that sometimes feels like jail. Our booth is about six feet wide. There are four of us that work in there. We have at least six televisions. Each of us has a telephone and a cell phone and a squawk box that's barking out news at all times. We're in the basement where we get spotty cell phone reception. So you'll often be waiting for your source call and it drops out right when they call. And we trust each other, but sometimes sources get really nervous if they hear other things in the background. They're like, who is that? So what we do when you get calls usually is run upstairs and you take the call outdoors in the driveway, whether it's pouring rain or 110 degrees. Or if you can't do that, sometimes, unfortunately, in the ladies' room. So you just see tons of White House correspondents wandering around on their cell phone under an umbrella in the pouring rain trying to take notes on their BlackBerry. And it's just unbelievably confining and, and just awkward. Um, so all of this is not a lament. It's, it's the reality. And in that reality, I see the, my job as doing the best I can to provide insight and context. Um, and doing that well is sort of what allows me to tune out all the bloggers who critique and criticize or praise and to sleep well for the few hours I do at night. So with that, I'm happy to take your questions. Let me, um, let's have a, just a few questions from me first, if, I, if you don't mind. When you talk about context, are you talking about uh, Politico and others narrowing their focus for a, um, a, effectively an audience that is purely one that is calculated for manipulating the legislation in the case of Politico, for instance, the lobbyists and so forth. And is this context that you mean 
is that something that includes reporting or is it something now that that journalists in a position like yours reporting for a general audience for CNN take what's sort of out there and then try to, rather than reporting it so much, try to put it, as you say, in context, which is more of a sort of news analysis than it is reporting. We, first of all, I should say that Politico does report, but in addition to that, they're adding this service behind a paywall to people who want this additional insight very into specific, yes, very inside and that's a trend. Mm. I mean, it, we're sort of catching the front wave of this trend that we're seeing mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. there's something money to be made there. I think it's not just them, uh, and they're very smart and savvy about getting at the head of these things. Uh, and our job is to both report. So it's all based. I mean, at CNN in particular, we're allowed to in you know provide sort of insight and a take as long as it's, as it's based on the facts. So you can sort of call someone out as saying, eh, that's a little bogus, as long as it's based on facts. So yes, you're reporting always. It's not an opinion, but it has to be, look, this person has a record of promising these 14 things, and now they're doing this. So it's about going back and showing people there's a change here. Uh, and it's about not just doing a snapshot in time. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, so for example, during the debt negotiations, part of the obligation was not to just go in and say, well, here's what they're arguing about today, but to constantly go back and remind viewers, this could have been done a long time ago. This didn't have to happen this way. This is a fight that could have been avoided. The partisanship, of course, that's, that's abroad right now has made it almost impossible to imagine anything that is said positive about the president that would not be answered with a negative immediately by the Republicans and aired in a, you know, of a piece. Is that sort of he said, she said? I mean, because there's not any real clarity in most cases when I've watched uh, uh, about, you know, where the weight of the argument is, where the weight of the truth is. It's just the president says this, and then, of course, a Republican will stand up and say that's entirely wrong. So it leaves people, I would think, perplexed and leaves reporters like you rather frustrated. How do you how do you see that? I do agree it's frustrating to just have the he said, he said, or she said, she said, and leave it, right? Because not every point of view is an equivalent. Uh, and then the problem is if you as a reporter weigh in and say this one's a little more truthful, you're inundated with hate mail. Uh, and you're partisan hack and you're in trouble. So. Uh, Again, you have to go to the facts. I think that we're right now in a, in a political environment where there's so much anger and so much venom uh, that it's the most you can do as a reporter is sort of lay out just the baseline of what's going on. Do, do your editors make you sort of cope with that hate mail yourself? I mean, is, I mean, I, what do you I, mean? I, I, get, I look at my Blackberry and there's like an email from my friend, there's an email from my mom, and then there's 14 that say, you know, you are evil, you, you shouldn't have. You just laugh. I mean, we commiserate with other reporters. I mean, you just delete it and forget it, or do you No, it bothers it? me. No, there's a, there's two ways to deal with it. Sometimes if you respond, they back down, and sometimes if you respond, they escalate. So my approach is to just not respond. The, twi the Twitterers, are the m it gets really out of control. 
when, <laughs> when I know that that you worked at MSNBC. Yes. And when you were there, you were asked, was it after you left MSNBC? I don't know. Yeah. You you know the story. I mean, it's your comments about the uh, the pressure you felt during the Iraq War to be sympathetic to the war. Would you talk about that? Because I'm sure that was something that prompted a huge amount of response. Right. And hate mail. I had said after um, Scott McClellan, the former press secretary at the Bush White House, came out with a book saying that the, I guess the press had been pro-war, uh, or covered it too positively. I said I said on air that the. Um, there had been pressure to cover the war in a way that was consistent with the patriotic fever in the nation at the time. I stand by that. Um, what surprised me is that was the media's reaction to it, actually, because so many of us felt that way. And so many reporters experienced that. I got so much email from other reporters saying, me too, totally. There are a lot of people on record also saying the same thing. Um, and so I don't think it's a surprise. Um, I think it was particular to each media organization how they covered it. Um, but again, I was, it was one of those experiences where I was on the other side of the media drama and I thought, really? This is news to you guys? It was just sort of like, eh, come on you guys. When, when you're doing your job, do you think of your competitors as you know, New York Times and NBC, or do you think of your competitors as Fox and MSNBC, or how do you how do you look at it, and what is the especially the Fox CNN relationship? I think there anybody who's covering the White House are is a competitor because we're all trying to break the news. Uh, that said, we have in a very collegial relationship among reporters in the White House press corps because everybody is having the same difficulty getting information. I mean, it's much more us versus them than it is us versus each other. Um, and I personally, there's a sort of TV versus press dynamic, print dynamic more than there is, in my view, cable versus network. Um, I don't have any, you know, CNN, Fox don't have as individuals, any kind of weird tension. I mean, Ed Henry was a CNN reporter until just a few months ago. We're friends. Uh, so why would, why would he go from CNN to Fox? He just, I don't know, you have to ask him, but he, he's happy there and he works right next door to me. We talk all day long. I mean, did he think it was a more sympathetic to his political or, orientation or something? He's a straight ahead reporter. I mean, this is something that I think is constantly in my view, misunderstood by viewers, that if you were to take in isolation what the reporters on the cable channels say, apart from what their anchors say, you can't tell me that Chuck Todd, when he's on MSNBC, is a, is a, you know, spinning a liberal line. He's a straight-ahead political reporter. Okay, well, I'll, I accept that. But, I mean, you also accept the fact that if you work for an employer that you feel takes what you do, which is straight, and turns it into something that isn't, then that's, you're voting with your feet. How would you feel comfortable working well, at Fox? I've been in the situation where I've had anchors ask me questions that I think are absurd, and you just have to tap dance around it. You just do your job. I mean, it's part of the gig. You're live on TV, they ask you something, you're, you find a way out of it so that you stay neutral, you stay true to who you are, and you let them take care of their piece. Well, you didn't answer the question, but I won't. <laughs> uh, I'd like to. See? <laughs> I'd like to invite uh, 
students to uh, be first in the line for asking questions. If there are any students at the Kennedy School or Harvard here who would like to ask a question, oh, you know, yes, step up to the mic if you would, please. Hello. Hi. My name is uh, Mitch Gerhardt. I'm a National Security Fellow here, uh, retired Army officer, and I, I work for the Defense Intelligence Agency now. And my question is, I think, personally, I was disappointed in President Obama's leadership or lack of leadership during this latest debt ceiling situation. And I think he really hurt himself by not putting a definitive plan out there ahead of time that he thought made sense publicly and in writing that could be worked on. Instead, he seemed to sit back and wait for proposals to come and he seemed to put himself in a box in the end and really didn't have much room to maneuver. Uh, have you experienced uh, a lot of viewers uh, that are kind of second, you know, having second thoughts about President Obama? Because I was very hopeful in the beginning and, and frankly now I'm, I'm a little disappointed in his leadership. Well, you're absolutely not alone in that criticism. I mean, that's something that the White House heard uh, and it's part of the reason he came out with such a concrete jobs plan. Uh, he was, their view was he, he was in a better position listening to both sides, I mean, in the debt deal, listening to both sides and finding a middle, right? So that was his view from the beginning. He did not come to office and present a stimulus to Congress, right? He didn't write the health care legislation. The only thing to date that I can recall that they helped write was the Dodd-Frank legislation, which was the Wall Street reform bill, which was written in the Treasury Department in part. Uh, that has not been their approach. So they sort of let Congress, they sort of send up their general principles and let Congress hash it out. Uh, and so that was their approach again with the debt deal. And they were roundly criticized for it. And one of the reasons they decided, you know what, don't, we're not gonna take that criticism again. Uh, we're gonna come out with a concrete plan. And so you saw him, not just outline a jobs plan, but he has written legislation that they have now sent to the Hill yesterday uh, on this jobs proposal. So now, you know, the argument will be, you cannot accuse us of not being concrete. Um, the pushback will be, is it, too, is it too late? Is it enough, et cetera? We'll see. You said you had some uh, numbers. Oh, yes. Uh, our polling unit at CNN has let me release our latest numbers, which are coming out, I think, later today or tomorrow. Um, which show that after the Jobs speech, which was unbelievably well received by Democrats, the president's numbers have gone down, um, but within the margin of error, so it's nominal. I mean, I think Mark McKinnon's in the audience. I don't know if you can tell us whether this even matters. Uh, his approval in late August was at 45%. General Jobs approval was at 45% before the Jobs speech. It's now down to 43%, so that's within the margin of error. He's held steady at 45% jobs appro uh, job approval all summer long. Uh, approval on the economy uh, has gone down to 34%. Pre-speech, it was at 36 um, Do they approve of how he's handling unemployment? 37% down from 39%. And then, this is the most interesting number to us. Do you favor or approve of what he said in the jobs speech? 22% say they don't know, which is meaningful because it sounds like a lot of people aren't paying any attention. And this was a guy a lot of people listened to for a long time. 
And um, it might be that he's reached some sort of saturation point where people aren't listening. Uh, if you're interested, 43% now say they favor what he said, 34 oppose. I'll tell you one other figure that is meaningful to the White House. Uh, his personal likability, 8 in 10 say that they think he's personally a likable guy. And that matters to the White House because this is crucial to their vision, their path to victory in 2012. They think that, I shouldn't say to the White House, but to his campaign aides, so let me be clear about that. Even if the, the, their thinking goes generally, if I can just be broad here, even if you don't like the job he's doing as president, you like him as a guy, and you think that he's working hard on your behalf. Uh, polling shows that mostly the, Americans blame the past administration for the economic hole we're in. And so if you think that here's a guy who has started to do his best, you like him, maybe they can build an argument that he's gotten us partway there. We're sort of halfway across the lake. Don't leave us, the nation, in the middle of that lake and let another guy swim backwards. Try to finish the job and get us all the way through. And that they can craft a campaign around the fact that he's a good guy. You know who else had high likability but low job approval was Ronald Reagan. And so there's some sort of parallel there. The numbers don't match up. I mean, Reagan had much better numbers and the economy was in a better condition. Uh, but that paired with the expectation that outside Democratic groups will uh, no doubt go after whoever the Republican nominee is and paint them as some extremist. So it'll be just a very, 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 very nasty campaign. Yes. Hi, my name is Liara Falk. I'm a first year student at the MPP program here at the Kennedy School. And I also, for the last three and a half years, was a reporter at one of those uh, narrow focused publications in Washington, DC. Which one? <laughs> BNA. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm actually curious about how um, politics and policy relate on the campaign trail. Is there any room for uh, like time during airtime or during your reporting for saying what the implications of the he said, she said horse race are for policy and the way this country is run? Or are people not interested in that? Is there no time? You know, it's incredibly hard and that's one of my personal struggles. I like covering the White House because at least you get some policy uh, and you it's, it's an, yes, the answer is yes. You have to know the policy, especially when it's healthcare, tax reform, uh, debt. This, you know, this cycle is about substance to some extent. The question is, you, when it's coming at you so fast, it's hard to keep up and digest. And then the reality is you're always moving. Like for me, we'll, we will land, you know, you get up at 4 a.m., you take a flight at 6, you land, get your rental car, drive to a site. Can you get reception? Can you get email? Can you call? You get there, you're expected to start writing. I mean, it's just go. You're always going, and then it's the next. So it, the question is, can you, you're like, you're immediately, the minute you get reception and connect to somebody, you're supposed to start filing your story. Um, and then as soon as you file that story, they want something for the next show that's different. So. The, how much can you rely on other people to feed you stuff, help you back home, and how much do you already know? What can you do in between? Um, 
I like policy, so I make it a responsibility to know that. Uh, but it is a challenge. Do you have to uh, tweet and blog too for CNN? I'm supposed to blog, a tweet and blog. I'm really bad at it. I just am so scared of tweeting because I'm sort of snarky and I'm really scared that I'm going to accidentally tweet something that I really meant to send a friend. And, you know, what if I do something wrong? And it just goes out there to so many blind people. Blind, I don't know. But yes, I'm supposed to. I think you should know that uh, Jessica was looking at my desk when we were talking before, and she saw that I had her Wikipedia. Ugh. And it's got a photograph of her that I, would, I don't think I would recognize you, frankly. I mean, it really it's a bad photo. It just doesn't look at all like you. And she was expressing her own unhappiness about it. I said, well, why don't you just change it? Oh, God, I couldn't do that. They'd find out. <laughs> <laughs> that, yes, please, go to the, to the mic. Hi, my name's Hi. Diane Chang. I'm also a first-year MPP, and um, previously I worked as an AP at uh, NBC News at various shows cool. and also at a, a PBS show called The Moyers Journal. Yeah. Um, and I want to go back to what you said about providing context, because I agree that that's what's most desperately needed now in the news industry overall. Um, I have heard from a lot of my friends who also tend to be interested in policy issues like the debt ceiling debate and with health care last year, and their complaint to me has been like they start to tune out a lot of news, both broadcast and print, but especially broadcast, because they feel like after the immediate breaking news is reported, the next thing that reporters have, a lot of reporters that they've encountered have gone to is, you know, this is how elections are then going to be affected, right. as opposed to this is how this is going to affect your life. So I was wondering if you could kind of comment on that and whether this is like an issue of, you know, understanding the subtleties of how it's actually going to affect people takes longer and the immediate effect of, you know, the political reality is much more salient and much more immediate, if that's, that's kind of why or what your th thoughts are on that. I, I think I wonder about that too. So there's, I think, two dynamics at play. One is what do our uh, producers, like our executive producers want? You know, we, we answer to people too. And sometimes they just want to go to the politics. It's much easier on TV to tell a politics story. How is this going to impact politics? We can go to a poll. We can quickly, like, get reaction on that than to say, how does something amorphous like the debt affect you? Um, and then the other piece of it is it's a harder tell on TV. Uh, and how do you make that a TV story? It's just not sexy. I mean, how do you talk about, I mean, it's one of the reasons that I've found the fact that the debt even matters to Americans this year amazing because it's not a one-step story. You have to, like, it's a couple steps to think about how it impacts me at home, the debt. And usually a TV story is a one, you know, TV news, it's like one step. It hits you at home right away. Um, and so it's the challenge of finding the personal narrative that hits someone in an immediate sense. Uh, and that it's just more work. So uh, it's, it's partly the more work, so how do you make it a good narrative? And then what, what do our bosses want? Are the students? Yes. Oh. Okay. Chris, please. You know, if anyone else would like, please just uh, step to the mic. Hard to get here. Hi, I'm Chris Russell. Um, just to ask a quick gender question, I was a Washington reporter in the 70s and 80s and did both Washington Post and some television. How do you feel it's changed? I mean, we don't necessarily have to go to Helen Thomas, but for you, both in the White House 
press room and as a television reporter who happens to be a woman and not a woman reporter. Uh, has it changed? Do you feel it's positive, uh, negative? Is it gender neutral? Uh, given that there are now so many women doing television and also doing the White House? Great question. Thank you for asking it. Um, I'm certain, I, I can't know what the experience was for the women who were first. Uh, I know Ann Compton and Judy Woodruff and Andrea Mitchell and Gloria Borger and I've heard stories of what they went through and I know that they made it different for me. Um, and I know that they have helped me and they are good to me. Uh, and so I'm grateful to them. Um, I don't encounter differences when I'm trying, there are some differences, but meaningful differences when I'm trying to get information. But I will tell you that without being specific about where or when or which outfits, along my career, um, as I've tried to get jobs, I was told, um, I won't look at your tape, blondes make stupid tapes. Uh, I see you went to Harvard. If you'll enroll in the Desert College of Palm Springs, you can be my secretary. Um, in a Fresno station, I was told, uh, I'll hire you, but I'm the only man in town to date. Is that a problem? Uh, when I finally got into news and I was into, I was trying to, you know, I told everybody along the way I want to be a White House correspondent. It didn't matter if I was in Tampa or Orlando or wherever I was, Fresno, just so you know, eventually this is what I want to do. You're too short to be a White House correspondent. Um, <laughs> your voice is too female. Um, and you generally lack gravitas as a woman. So I think that um, it's significantly changed. I'm there. Nobody treats me like I can't ask a meaningful question. I'm called on. The White House doesn't have an issue. But as an environment, as a news environment, there's a difference. And I'm really glad Nora O'Donnell is there because now there are two, senior, two chief White House correspondents in the broadcast press pool and not just one. And it, it gives us a sense of camaraderie. What about the audience? Do you get feedback? I was always shocked about, you know, your hair, your outfit. Oh. Is that still just endless? Maybe the men get it too. From the audience. I mean, yeah. from tweeting. Not just the audience, emailing. but um, at various points from from management. Um, I would break stories and get emails saying, your hair's an eighth of an inch longer on one side than the other. Do you think you're tilting your head or is your haircut uneven? <laughs> or... Um, <laughs> Do you notice that your hair seems to be blowing in the wind? And then compare me to another reporter whose hair wasn't blowing in the wind, only that reporter was indoors. <laughs> and you'd have to try to explain why that might be. And I'm thinking, do I need to explain why that might be? I mean, do you think they understand what? You know, so, and, and you could never figure out. And one person was doing this with me and yelled at me and said, you know, your hair has too many layers. It looks like you think you're a model. You're not a model. And she must have seen the look on my face and said, I know you think men don't get this kind of criticism, and they don't, but that's just the way it is. Melissa. Very depressing. <laughs> um, I'm Melissa Ledke. I work at the Neiman Foundation. I edit Neiman Reports. But uh, as a reporter who 35 years ago was a woman trying to cover sports, it is very sad to me that to hear your accounts from today, because you'd think in 35 years some of these comments would have been uh, eliminated. But that said, I want to actually go back to some of the meat of your presentation Can I, earlier. May I just add one thing, though? Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you. But I would like to say that since I've been at CNN, may I point out 
that we have this saying, which is, you know, you can laugh as you want, but best political team on television, and it is remarkable how different it is at CNN, how many women are on the best yep. political team on television. I mean, Gloria Borger, Candy Crowley, Dana Bash, they let women cover politics. So it is not a sorry state of affairs in general. There are some problems with comments in various times and places. But I think as a general trend, we're going in the right places and there are some good right. places for women. I agree with you and we all had to learn to swim with the tide. Right. So okay, whichever sorry. way the tide was going at the time. Go on. Um, I wanted to go back to your comments and try to bring some context or try to ask you to bring some context to what you point out is happening, for example, at Bloomberg. Uh, Bloomberg government, the subscription cost per year is $5,237. At Politico, I don't know what it is. But I think if we're thinking about context and we're wondering about where journalism fits into the broader context of our society and our political life and just simply our democracy, I'm wondering what the questions ought to be that journalists are asking today when we see that privileged information is being reported and given to people who already have an inside track. And we're watching the societal dynamics at play here where we're seeing people turn away because they no longer trust the institutions. They don't trust them because they're not part of the inside game. They're not part of the inside financial game. They're not inside the beltway in terms of influencing the politics in their lives. And if we're really moving down the track that you're saying this train is going down, I'd like to hear your sense of the implications for this because I sure can't afford to pay $5,237 to Bloomberg. But I'd be very interested in hearing that news. And I think a lot of people ought to be interested in knowing what people know who can pay for it. So, Well, Bloomberg also provides a fabulous service uh, for, of general news content for people who get Bloomberg news. Um, I think that there's a lot of media outlets out there for all of us. I mean, the proliferation of news media and what the blogosphere has allowed us to do has just allowed more niche reporting in general. And so I don't know if we have to lament the fact that people who want to know how legislation on some medical device is moving through Congress is where it stands right now. Is that really awful that they have to pay for it? When what you're really interested in is women's health issues and you get it for free by logging on and reading some website that's great. I mean, they have to pay. You don't. It's just, it's a different model because there's money in one area and there's not in another. Um, I just, the fact that everybody has access to the internet and there's so much out there allows all of us to get more information. I don't know, my point is, I don't know that we have to lament this. Um, the, there is a challenge in that it's all getting so niche that there are fewer places where we can all go and get what Cronkite gave us. You know, the same information together that kind of unites us. And there's so few outlets where we can all hear a similar story. And I think that there are a couple places where we can give a story. And that's, sorry, that's the, try to, the point I was trying to make about CNN and, and some of these networks where we can try to be the, the context builder. Um, everybody can go out and get what they want out there. Pay, don't pay, whatever. But we can be a home base in some way. Yes. So um, 
some, I got the, some of the ethical concerns of journalism. Who are you? Uh, my name's Zach. Sorry, I'm Zach, Zach Rosenfeld, MVP one. Um, but yeah, as I was saying, um, the ethical concerns of journalism con concern themselves with not only what you report, but what you don't report. You know, for I mean, the classic example is sometimes you, know, you don't want to report military secrets um, in order to not betray movements and what what have you. But sort of on a more domestic scale, there's um, some arguments that are being made, not completely without merit, that um, negotiators in Congress cannot really do their jobs anymore because whenever they try to make a deal, whenever they try to sort of come, you know, make a, make a concession and it doesn't work out, that, that concession gets reported anyway and it really distorts the, the negotiating process. And we live now in an era where there's WikiLeaks and people leak, leaking the WikiLeaks <laughs> and bloggers and so many like sort of just reporters on the ground. Like, do you see sort of these ethics changing? Like, what is the the, the news like sort of the broadcast or the print journalist's role now in that kind of? So, I don't get caught up in uh, wishing it were different. Because it's just not going to be. It's sort of, you know, the music industry trying to clamp down on music sharing. It's just go with it, figure out how to deal with the reality. Uh, because there's so much quick information sharing, things leak, it gets out, there are changes, how do we cope with it? Uh, it does seem to impact the way Congress does business. At least that's the complaint I hear from them all the time. Um, I also think it's kind of a convenient way for them to say that they can't talk about anything because they like to find ways to blame us for every single thing that goes wrong up there. Um, what I think, you know, one person said the biggest problem on Capitol Hill is that nobody gets together and drinks anymore. I mean, it used to be that, you know, after hours they'd take a bottle of bourbon into the cloakroom and they'd have fighting all day and then they'd get drunk and cut a deal. And now that doesn't happen. So I don't know if it's the fact that everybody's leaking or that there's so much, you know, partisanship or everybody's so busy raising money and they're going back to their districts all the time. Nobody's bonding and sitting down and just talking. Um, so that seems to be the biggest reason nobody's cutting deals. There's not a lot of bipartisan friendships, like genuine social bonds. Uh, in terms of at the ethics of leaking, I hear that there are a lot of people who, who violate you know, off the record rules. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit more cautious than most people. I personally, as a rule for me, would rather retain a lifelong source and lose a story today than break a little story today and burn someone. Nick. Uh, <clears throat> I'm uh, Nick Daniloff. Um, actually, I'm a professor these days at Northeastern University. Uh, you mentioned in passing Helen Thomas, and I'm pleased to say that I covered the White House with Helen Thomas at the time of President Nixon's resignation. And she was one fantastic reporter. I won't comment on her later experience. But as somebody who has been watching the press and the techniques of the press and trying to tell students today what you will be facing should you ever get to the White House or to Washington, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the techniques of journalism today. Uh, if you could talk a little bit about how President Obama tries to manage or doesn't try to manage the press, what your relationship is with Jay Carney, and anything else that bears on that kind of subject. 
It's a big topic. Uh, so the, the White House is, I think that they're very careful, as I said, about what they release because they're so hyper-conscious that anything will get tweeted out and sent out immediately. Um, the president manages the press by being the spokesman in chief. I mean, this is a White House. You might remember in Clinton years, Bush years, they let their cabinet do a lot of talking. This White House does not. You do not see their cabinet out a lot at all. So the president does the speaking mostly. Uh, and that centers a lot of control in the White House. Uh, Jay Carney is very available to the press. Uh, you know, because he used to be a member of the press, he gets, he doesn't just get what you're asking, he gets what you mean by what you're asking, which sometimes is really helpful and sometimes is awful because you can't trip him up and get something out of him he doesn't mean to say. Um, and in terms of techniques, can I, you know, we email all day, we call, we, you know, go back and forth, you trade information, I'm hearing this, what are you hearing, I'm getting, you're getting. Uh, sometimes they'll email you and see something on Twitter and they'll say, well, do you know what this means? You know, everybody's sending information back. I mean, it's constantly like, we're on the BlackBerry all day long. I'm hearing this, what is that? It's just back and forth, obsessively. Uh, you can't put it down. Uh, but in terms of, of techniques, you know, there's that press briefing we go to all day, every day, that's a lot of show. You have to sit there, ask a question. Everybody knows it's sort of all about being on camera and you don't get the most information there. You get information when you're off camera talking to people privately. A, a quick follow-up at a White House press conference, does uh, the president have a list of people yes. that he would want to call on first and people he would not want to call on? The uh, press office builds the list for the president with the names and the order already on it. So why was he torturing you? I, I don't know. I was obsessing over, are they hazing me? Are they not going to call on me? Why are they doing this? <laughs> Bob? Uh, I'm Bob Giles. Uh, I guess you could say I'm recovering from my years at the Neiman Foundation. Um, last night, after the debate, uh, CNN turned to something called the truth meter and uh, in demonstrated that uh, Governor Perry's statement that the Stimulus had produced what he said, zero jobs, uh, and they judged it to be totally false. Is that a device that CNN might use more regularly during the campaign to, uh, to keep the record straight? You know, I'm not sure, and I shouldn't speak to it, but I do know that uh, there is a great interest in uh, fact-checking, and that um, we generally perceive that as some a service we can provide as sort of this sort of neutral center where people can come for information. And I wouldn't be surprised if we do a lot more of that during the campaign. It's very interesting like because it? the convention is that you don't call someone a liar. But right. fact-checking is a it's lot fine. more neutral. Well, it's from um, PolitiFact. I mean, what the St. Petersburg Times did was revolutionary and fantastic. And, and I'm not sure if it's in partnership with them or not. I'd have to find out. but. If we could do more of that, I think it would be, you liked it, I take it. Bob, did, yeah. they, did, they, did they vouch for this themselves, or was this uh, like? I quoted a government agency that said that the unplanned truth is the sequence by Sweden got created or saved as a result of the stimulus. Mm -hmm. That was their, that was their counter evidence, and that, that was the basis of judgment that it was a false statement. 
Well, we have an in-house brain trust named Rob Yoon, who's a genius, and I pray at his feet, and I'm so glad he's there. And he, you go to him with any question like this, and he's our own politifact truthometer. If Rob says it's true or false, we believe it. So I bet it came from Rob Yoon. <laughs> we'll find out. I'm Neil Gabler. I'm a Shorenstein Fellow this year. You mentioned earlier that uh, you would come public about being pressured, you felt, to be give a more patriotic vision of the war, and that once you did that, there was a chorus of other reporters who joined you and said, I know this feeling. Why weren't there mass resignations? I don't know. I mean, well, That's a very important question. I mean, if people feel that they're compelled to distort the news, why didn't they resign? Did you resign I didn't, under that pressure? I didn't say I didn't say distort the news. I said that there is we felt pressure to present the news in a way that felt consistent with the patriotic fever in the nation at the time. Which is another way of saying distorting the news. <laughs> and and I I think that I think that there've been a lot of there's been a lot said about this and I just don't want to go any further on it. All right. Hey, Trey. Hey, I figured out why her Wikipedia picture is no good. It was at Rand Paul's victory party. That's why <laughs> you were having a bad picture. But I, earlier, you, is it? Yeah, that's what it's from. Really? Yeah. One <laughs> of you were upset. Which was at a country club. I remember that yeah, night. Bowling Green, yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier that you told everybody along the way you wanted to be a White House correspondent. When did you actually decide? I remember you were really involved in politics as an undergrad. But when did you decide to? Had you always wanted to be a broadcast journalist? No, I wanted to be uh, mayor of Los Angeles. Okay. Um, I did. And then um, I, I became a White House intern uh, after graduating yeah. from college. And I didn't like what I saw there, not because of anything in particular, but because I thought people don't get to stand up for what they believe in. People have to do the bidding of what the guy who's president, which you know would kind of follow if you're working in the White House. But, uh, and I thought that the journalist got to sort of hold his feet to the fire more. Uh, and that they listened, I noticed that they listened to the reporters almost more than they listened to their own policy people. That was my read, that there is somehow the media could push in a way that the internal political folks couldn't or the internal people couldn't. And also, I just sort of, being from LA, liked the media, I liked the fun of it. There's a, you know, energy to TV that is different from politics and policy that you, you can do all of it. So it was when I was doing that that I decided I'd like to try media and TV. Uh, and then it was a long haul from there. Yeah. I ended up having to go back. I went into print and then I did four years through local news and working my way back. Finally, covering the Michael Jackson trial. I mean, covering sinkholes in Florida. Who knew? But it eventually worked. We're, we're just about out of time. I want to ask one final question of you, given that you've now been in the White House long enough to, you know, get a get a feeling that you have this background. If you were to characterize, not necessarily your own view, but the general view of the White House press corps about the political advice that Barack Obama has been getting. How would you characterize what the press thinks of that political advice? What does the press think of the advice the president's getting? I, I think that the White House is a, 
aware that it is not going well for him right now. I mean, that's no secret. Um, I think the general sense there is that it's message uh, more than any, I mean, this is their perception, is that it's message more than anything, um, and that if they can hit on the right message, things will, you know, the, the boat will, they'll, they'll even out, and he is searching for the, that they're going to hit a new stride right now, is their view. Um, I think that the press is well aware that he's in a tight spot. You know, there's no clarity that he is, um, he's in a tough re-election. There's no clarity that he will win at all. Uh, they are enormously successful campaigners. They know how to campaign. Whatever you might think of how they govern, they know how to campaign. So he's got that going for him. Uh, disciplined, organized, clear. He needs, uh, they think that right now they will begin a new phase where they'll go on this jobs message. That will morph into a campaign phase, which we will start seeing in, in 2012. Um, so the next stretch will be about jobs until the end of the year when this debt commission is doing its thing. And, and then they'll, you know, and we'll hear his surrogates attack the Republicans, but he won't. Uh, and then we'll, you know, be off to the races next year. Uh, but he needs to hit on a, he wants, they want to be, they think that the Republicans are not going to buy his jobs message. And then if they don't, they can run against a do-nothing Congress and a president who has proposed this very clear jobs plan and has a plan for the future and give us a chance to finish the job we started. The big question is, what if Congress does pass some of this jobs plan and takes it away from him as an issue? Well, what then? And what if the economy improves a little bit, but not a lot? What then? What's the message? Jessica, we'll be watching. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks for having me.